Okay, let's do this thing. Hello, and welcome to the episode of Heavy Metal 101 where we can finally can all... Nah, nah, hold on, I said can too early. Let's try this again. Shall we? You're the boss. Sibilance. <laughs> <laughs> And welcome to the episode of Heavy Metal 101, where we finally can all this pie-in-the-sky philosophical nonsense and just get down to the business of making educated suggestions of a bunch of really cool music for people to listen to. So this is the penultimate episode of our first season of Heavy Metal 101. Holy crap! John, we're nine episodes in. Ten, if you count the Spotify-only Halloween bonus episode. In your weirdest, wildest dreams, did you ever imagine that we would make it nine episodes deep? Uh, yeah. I mean, I assumed once I signed on, this would be sort of a syndicated thing that would run until I die, basically. I, I promised you a permanent income stream, didn't yeah. I? Yeah. Uh, we, we need to talk after we record the episode about that. Great. Great. <laughs> a little bit of bookkeeping before we begin. First off, a big thanks to all our season number one listeners. You guys and gals are the coolest. If you have any strong opinions about subjects you'd like to hear us yammer about in the future, please let us know via social media or at heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com. We'd love your thoughts on 1980s heavy metal essentials, as well as future subjects for advanced topics in metalology or Roots of Metal episodes for season number two. Also, a friendly reminder that if you like the show, please do rate and review us on iTunes or whatever other podcasting app you might be using. So, our final episode of the season will be our return to the all-important story of Black Sabbath in the 1970s. And this will feature a very special mystery guest. It will be amazing, and you shouldn't miss it. However, before we get to that, there were a few tasks I wanted to be sure to accomplish on this penultimate episode before we take a wee little break to recharge our batteries prior to our second season. So my goals for today are as follows. Number one, there are three more bands we have yet to discuss in any detail whose work from the 1970s I felt we couldn't possibly skip. So we will introduce heavy hitters, The Scorpions, Rainbow, and ACDC. John, are you excited to chat about these three titans of heavy music in the 1970s? I'm excited to talk about at least one of them. Ooh, it's like a mystery. Which one could it be? Stay tuned and find out. Number two, I wanted to make sure to offer our listeners something tangible for all the effort and energy they've expended while listening to us prattle on endlessly. Well, I mean, they've listened to me prattle on endlessly. You've just mostly offered pithy insights and wildly questionable conclusions. <laughs> conclusions? <laughs> Spe speculations? There we go. Yeah. Anyhow, I wanted to offer up a listener's guide of essential music from heavy metal's first decade, the 1970s. My hope is that one could use this list as a solid, helpful entry point towards an ever deeper exploration of heavy metal history. Before we talk about my recommendations, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. John, now that you've had a chance to listen to nine episodes worth of early heavy metal repertoire, do you have any John-approved heavy metal bands or albums that you think are particularly essential from the 70s? 
Eric, you know full well I cannot name anything that we have not discussed already on this show. And I think I've made it pretty clear that of the things we discussed on this show, the first Black Sabbath album was fine and Judas Priest was entertaining. So if you got through those episodes without actually listening to that music, you should go listen to that music. All right. Well, so the John approved list is is, is complete. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll catch you next time. We got the one that's coming up today. I didn't want to get ahead of ourselves. I think that's fair. And both of those are on the list. So actually, you did real well. Thanks, I worked very hard on it. I know you did. We will now begin our sinister journey through the darkness and the muck, collecting this list of essential bands and albums that will send any young lad or lass well on their way along the primrose path, leading straight to hell. <laughs> so the first band we're going to discuss is an easy and obvious choice. That would be the godlike musical founders of the entire genre, ABBA. <laughs> Your favorite band and mine, the Dancing Queens. <laughs> no, that was John's, John's coughing up his iced coffee. You like the Dancing Queens. That's, That's a good. good name for a gay opera cover band, obviously. <laughs> it's got to be out there somewhere. Probably so. Um, so what we're talking about, of course, is black effing Sabbath. We kicked the whole podcast off by discussing the Big Bang of the Heavy Metal Cosmos, Black Sabbath's eponymous debut album, released on, ooh, do you remember the date? Uh, it was Friday the 13th. Good. I don't remember the year. Wow, oh, you're a terrible student. Yeah. February 13th, 1970. Oh, see, I was, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I was close. Yeah. Terrible student. Now, to be fair, that was last semester. <laughs> it's true. It's true, you've been through a lot since then. To be honest, that first album does still have one foot in hard blues rock, but the other foot is indeed planted surely in the newly founded genre of heavy metal, and as such, it is of course essential listening. We're going to get much more granular on the next episode about the remaining Black Sabbath albums of the decade, but for now, here is what you need to know. Each of the first six Black Sabbath albums are the bedrock foundation of the heavy metal repertoire. Black Sabbath from 1970, Paranoid, also 1970, Master of Reality, 1971, Volume 4, 1972, Black Sabbath, 1973, and Sabotage from 1975 are all crucial and absolutely delightful albums. Now, if I was forced at gunpoint to choose just one essential 70s Black Sabbath album, I would probably need to choose Paranoid, the second album, which is really the first true definitive heavy metal masterpiece. It was also my own personal first exposure to Black Sabbath back in junior high. That said, I cannot possibly overemphasize how essential all six of these albums are. So, John, do you feel ready to embrace your dark side and to steep yourself in each of these first six Black Sabbath albums? Absolutely. Excellent. You're also going to have to listen to a pretty good amount of so these. So I've been told. <laughs> because we're, we're going to have a guest, and you don't want to look like a complete moron in front of our guest, right? I mean, why should that episode be any different from any other episode, <laughs> Eric? True. You've set the bar very low at this point, <laughs> so you might as well just keep on keeping on. I should probably note there were two other 1970s Sabbath albums with the original lineups. Technical Ecstasy in 1976 and Never Say Die in 1978. Now, each of these do have some excellent moments, but they were definitely the product of a band that had lost a step. It was the drugs. Mm. It wouldn't be until 1980 that a dramatically modified version of Black Sabbath released their seventh utterly essential album, 
but that, alas, is outside of the purview of this discussion, so you'll all need to wait until season two for that story. Okay, John, so to make these things official, I'm gonna have you read off number one on our list, which is super complicated. Number one on our list is the first six Black Sabbath albums. Black Sabbath, Paranoid, Master of Reality, Volume 4, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, and Sabotage. That was nice. Thank you. Yeah, good, good. And if you're just too damn cool to listen to all six albums, you got so much going on, you just can't hack it, then I suppose you could just listen to Paranoid, which is the most essentialist of these essentials. Moving on! Probably... The first 101 level, absolutely crucial metal-ish album, not by Black Sabbath, is another one we've talked about, Deep Purple's Machine Head from 1972. Uh, is this a metal album? Is it a proto-metal album? I'm not totally sure. Actually, John, you listened to this album for our last episode, The Classical Roots of Heavy Metal. What are your thoughts on Machine Head's heavy metal status? You know, as you defined heavy metal for us... Mm -hmm. Some, some of the key elements that I remember were the use of, like, the power chord. Mm -hmm. Power chords, yep. The use of riffs. Riffs. Mm -hmm. And... Distortion. Sure, distortion, yeah, all those effects. There also seemed to be some sort of a implied connection to darkness. Yeah, a lot of Satan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this roughly hits on two of three. Yeah, I'd say that's an accurate assessment. Not dark, but definitely all those other things. Yeah. And, oh, powerful tenor singing. You got, oh, you right, got I forgot about the tenor Ian Gillen, singing. yeah. Yeah. All right, well, let's read the damn thing into the record. Number two in the 1970s heavy metal starter pack is Deep Purple's Machine Head. <laughs> that was my Ian Gillen scream, just, just not to be confused with my Rob Alford scream. Right, totally different screams. Very, very different <laughs> and unique screams. So if you're playing the drinking game, that was the Ian Gillen scream, just so we're clear. Next on this list, Alice Cooper, who we discussed back on episode number five. Now, John, I actually did not make you listen to any Alice Cooper albums for that episode, which is one of the truly deep regrets of my life. You've I, had a great life. I've had a charmed goddamn life. Congratulations. No thank you, thank you. My regrets are shallow and pathetic, <laughs> which is just as I would like it. But I, seriously, I don't really know. Do you know Alice Cooper's music? They were in Wayne's World. They were. So you that's, know that's, Feed My Friends. Yeah, that's the extent of my knowledge about <laughs> Alice right, Cooper. Right. That's a decent song. It's not, <laughs> not one of my favorites. It's uh, not very good. No, no, it's not one of the best. Not not a, not a classic. And, and that would be the solo Alice Cooper rather than the Alice Cooper band mm -hmm. that we're sort of discussing here. I think an argument could be made for a number of the classic Alice Cooper band albums on this list. But I do think we can get away with just one of them for our starter pack. So I would posit 1973's Billion Dollar Babies as the most important of these proto-metal, maybe early metal classic albums. It's got Hello Hooray, Elected, the title track, and No More Mr. Nice Guy, which are all indisputable classics. I do know that one. Ooh, that's great. That one rang a bell. Great song. Great song. There's also the super cool Sick Things, which definitely has a sort of Black Sabbath proto-doom metal vibe to it. Doom metal? Oh, yeah. Yeah, doom metal doesn't really become a thing until the 1980s, but it's basically very Black Sabbath-influenced, slow, sludgy metal. So, to my mind, the most important thing about this album is that it ends with literally by far the greatest balladic anthem about necrophilia in the history of the repertoire. And is that, that would... a long list? 
I would have to I would have to check, but I definitely think I Love the Dead is is, is at the top. It's it's at the top of that list. All right. Well, literally, no one is going to try and argue with you, but uh, hmm, we'll see. If you have a better necrophilia ballad. Send it, send it my way. I would love to compare and contrast. I'm just concerned about anyone who is, like, earnestly thinking about that topic now. All the potential ballads about necrophilia yeah. out there. Yeah. This is a great album. Maybe it's metal, maybe it's hard rock, but it's indisputably, incredibly influential on heavy metal. So we're going to put it on the list. You should tattoo it onto your arm and listen to the goddamned album. So, John, speak the magic word. Number three. Alice Cooper's Billion Dollar Babies. Boom! So we're about to be four entries deep. John, are you enjoying this fast-moving roller coaster ride careening through metal's musical masterpieces? I'm having a great time. You look happy. This is my happy face. You're on spring break. It's spring break. Spring break. What else would you rather be doing? Sleeping. Don't don't answer the question. <laughs> just 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 nod and smile. <laughs> now, it's time for the band that made me the man I am today, and one that a lot of people probably won't approve of on a heavy metal list. And that is the hottest band in the land, KISS! Now look, I won't assert that 70s KISS is definitively heavy metal, but I will assert that like Alice Cooper, their visual image and wild live performances are among the most important formative influences on the metal that would follow. I'd also point out that Kiss Alive from 1975 is considerably heavier than the three studio albums that had preceded it, and I'd personally consider it an early heavy metal essential. I'm not totally comfortable suggesting live albums, but if I had to choose just one 70s Kiss album, Alive is probably the one. Of course, some people may say, no, sir, I will not accept a live album on this list. It's like a damned greatest hits album. John, how do you feel about live albums? Are they like regular albums, or are they a different beastie? I mean, they are inherently a different beast because you're getting a captured moment in time versus a planned out presentation, but that doesn't negate their value. Yeah. They're just different. Yeah. I mean, they often suck, but some of them are really, I mean... Well, yeah, I mean, look, Eric, all of this music sucks, so that's really irrelevant (laughs) to me. If you disagree with John... (laughs) Please email us at heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> well, anyhow, I am going to hedge my bets and provide a studio alternate here. I've thought about this. Choosing a single classic Kiss studio album was very hard for me, but I'm going to give Love Gun from 1977 the nod. You like that title, It's a you? good name. It is a great name. <laughs> it's got I Stole Your Love, Shock Me, the incredible title track, These are damn good songs. The indispensable Chuck Klosterman described Love Gun as, quote, kiss at their utmost kiss, which I think is really accurate. Ooh, ooh, so this whole thing is going to be like a choose-your-own-adventure. So if you want the live experience of the best of the first three Kiss albums made yet heavier, you can go with a live. If you want 70s studio Kiss at their hard-rocking best, you can go with Love Gun or... If you want to be a total weirdo, you could listen to my favorite Kiss album, 1979's fabulous disco-inflected Dynasty. John, your eyes got really big there. I just, I mean, I struggle with the music of Kiss to begin with, if Mm -hmm. we're fair. But the thought of Kiss disco? (laughs) And the concerning statement that this is your favorite album. It tells me a lot about you. And I already knew a healthy amount about you, but Mm -hmm. I know... A lot more now. I'm like an onion, you know? Did, did you ever read Choose Your Own Adventures? 
not really. Well, in Choose Your Own Adventures, like, you know, there's multiple choices, usually say three, and there would always be one where if you chose it, you'd like flip the pages and then you're just dead. My assumption here is that Dynasty is the uh, instant death choice of our personal Choose Your Own Adventures. So probably you should go with one of the other two, but you do you. All right, speak the words and make it real. For number four on the list, Kiss Alive is our top choice, but if the listener prefers a studio album, they can replace it with Love Gun. And if the listener would like to die instantly, they can listen to Dynasty. Ooh! It's good to have choices, right? That's what we're told. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say, you can't go wrong with Kiss. You can't go wrong. Okay. It is at last time to get to our first band we actually haven't really discussed yet on this show, and it's a really good one. So, John, are you ready to head to deepest, darkest Germany and talk about the Scorpions? Yeah. Yeah, it's good. The Scorpions were formed by guitarist Rudolf Schenker way back in 1965. Um, they were formed in Hanover, Germany, and they released their debut album, Lonesome Crow, in 1972. But actually, the band that released that psychedelic rock album broke up right afterwards, and then went on to reform with a rather different membership for their sophomore album, Fly to the Rainbow, in 1974. This marks the start of what is known as the Scorpions' Yuli John Roth era, he was the rather legendary lead guitarist for four of their 1970s releases. So truly classic 1970s Scorpions really gets going with 1975's In Trance, which still shows some vestiges of that psychedelic rock business, but is definitely much more of a hard rock album than its predecessors. It's a fabulous album, and I love it, along with all of the Yuli John Roth albums. I do think the Scorpions actually make more of a convincing case as a pop metal band after Roth leaves, but In Trance, Virgin Killer, and Taken by Force are all exceptional albums. The Scorpions had a variety of lineups in the 1970s. The most commercially successful version of the band were together from 1978 through 92, and this consisted of Klaus Main vocals, the aforementioned Rudolf Schenker, rhythm guitar, Matthias Jobs, lead guitar, Francis Buchholz, bass, and Hermann Rarebell, drums. Schenker is the only continuous member throughout the entire history of the band, though Maine has actually sung on every single one of their albums, and Jobs has stuck around ever since he arrived in 1978. As I said, all of the Scorpions' 1970s work is really great, but I'm picking 1979's Love Drive which is the first album with the lineup I just mentioned, and is both the heaviest and probably the best of their 70s albums. John, read it. Love Drive gets the nod as number five on our list of essential heavy metal 101 bands and albums of the 1970s. Because I care about you, I didn't want you to have no context for that important Scorpions background that I just gave. So I made a playlist for you that included three songs from Love Drive. Can't Get Enough, Coast to Coast, and Holiday. What do you think about those? Yeah, I mean, they sound like a lot of sort of rock bands from the 70s to me. Except amazing. Your word. <laughs> Say it, John. They're amazing. Look, everyone should ignore John. They played some music. They sure did. John is a crazy person. He's sick and should be cared for in an institution. I honestly don't know how anyone could fail to enjoy, to love 
really the scorpions. Look, it's not bad. It's just kind of also not terribly interesting to me. But that's okay. Okay, well this, you know, this is why you're my foil, right? You're, right, You're yeah. here to keep me grounded. You're stupid, stupid opinions. <laughs> I hope you take that little clip and just edit that out and turn that into your ringtone every time I call you. <laughs> With your stupid, stupid opinions. <laughs> We're now at the halfway point. If you've been waiting to crack open a beer or perhaps a fine bourbon, now is the time. And if you'd like to send us a fine bourbon, incidentally, please do reach out. We will gladly accept any and all alcoholic tips or cash tips. John, what do you think, bourbon or cash? I am concerned Mm -hmm. with the premise of this suggestion in that it would appear to involve someone knowing where I live. Yeah, I'm not going to give them my address. Yeah, so let's go with cash. (laughs) All right. Well, all right, so so cash probably makes more sense for John's sense of safety and security. Because I've now offended a whole lot of people by saying that, you know, the scorpions... I want to kill you, and I know you, and, like, you know, think highly of you. Don't lie. All right. Thought thought highly of you at one point. (laughs) All right. Let's continue. This next one's quick and easy, but it is another band that makes a certain breed of metalhead a little bit snippy. That's not heavy metal. That would be Boston's favorite sons and America's greatest rock and roll band, Aerosmith. You've got to have some sleaze on a list like this, and there's no one who does sleaze like Steven Tyler and the boys. All of Aerosmith's 70s work is pretty damn amazing, but Toys in the Attic from 1975 provides a perfect intro to Aerosmith's incredibly influential brand of metallic blues rock. So that's the one. John, read the words, because God is listening. Number six. Toys in the Attic by Aerosmith. (laughs) You bastard. (laughs) It says, number six is my, John's, favorite album in the history of the world. (laughs) Toys in the Attic by Aerosmith. Yeah, that's a lie. Uh, You read too fast and efficiently. Um, (laughs) Wasn't reading fast. Did you hear the giant pause? As my brain filtered through the information. (laughs) (laughs) So John doesn't love Aerosmith. But but you know, as we've as we've learned today, John doesn't love life. Yeah. So I mean, what we, the takeaway from this podcast for everyone who's listened to every episode is that John doesn't do happiness or joy. Right. Right. So disregard so, his opinion when it comes to entertainment. I think that's very valid. Yes, a good rule of thumb to live by. So Rainbow is another really important band that we're going to consider for the first time in real detail today. John, buddy. I put three Rainbow songs on your preparatory playlist. Are you a Rainbow fan or what? I'll give you three guesses. What was the question? <laughs> John is being fired from the heavy metal world. No, okay, okay. Rainbow, first of all, terrible name for a heavy metal band. It is not a great name. It's I a will terrible not name. Although the original name was Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Yeah, that's worse. (laughs) Which you can imagine Ronnie James Dio, the singer, just absolutely loved. Yeah, so, okay, I'm torn on this one because on the one hand, this band sets up really, really excellent grooves. Mm -hmm. They set up a feel for their songs that I really enjoy. The singing is good. Mm -hmm. Every song Mm -hmm. is roughly four minutes too long. (laughs) So I, I will say I gave John a three 
track playlist from Rising, and two of those make up the entire second side. So those are both really long songs. But there's something going on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that something, more than anything else, is the world at large's introduction to the late, great, heavy metal demigod, Ronnie James Dio. What did you think about the mellifluous power and range of Dio's magnificent instrument particularly? Yeah, it's good. This, this, this is the kind of singing in the genre that I can get behind. Okay, yeah. Big, strong tenor voice, big range, lots of power. Yeah, and healthy. Yeah, vibrato, nice yeah. natural vibrato. A little bit of bite, but not Yeah, so no, much. that's fine. That's good. Yeah, that's right. good. Ronnie James Dio features on each of the first three Rainbow albums, all of which are pretty damn great. But Rising, Rainbow's sophomore album from 1976, is the essential standout classic. So let's hone a little bit deeper in on these groovy early heavy metal sorcerers. Rainbow originally formed in 1975 during the time when Richie Blackmore was leaving Deep Purple. He left because of his distaste for elements of funk and soul that were increasingly creeping into the Mark III era Deep Purple music. You can check out the album Stormbringer if you're curious about such things. He seems to have particularly butted heads with Mark III's bassist slash co-vocalist Glenn Hughes, and so he left and formed Rainbow. When it was first formed, it was basically Blackmore, accompanied by Dio's band Elf. Elf was pretty intimately involved. Also yes, a terrible name. It's not a great name. It's, not a, it's actually not a great band. I don't much care for Elf. So the original band was just basically Elf plus Richie Blackmore. But shortly after recording the debut album in 1975, Blackmore actually fired everyone in the band except for Ronnie James Dio. The three Blackmore Dio albums I mentioned, they are Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, 1975, Rising, 1976, and Long Live Rock and Roll, 1978. Rainbow had a mess of members, but the really crucial folk are, of course, vocalist Ronnie James Dio, who was born Ronald James Padovana in New Hampshire in 1942, and who lyrically gave heavy metal its Dungeons and Dragons and sword and sorcery connections, as well as, you know, one of the biggest and most sort of grandiose voices in the entire genre. He's also probably the person most responsible for the popularization of the heavy metal devil horn salute, which he had actually learned from his Italian grandmother. He stood just five feet four inches tall and was often referred to as the little man with the big voice. Dio very sadly died of stomach cancer on May 16, 2010, which was a truly terrible day for all of heavy metal. So on guitar was Richard Hugh Blackmore, who we discussed on our last episode. Very famous drummer, I'm not going to talk about him today, but Cozy Powell. And one more important heavy metal figure I, I do want to mention who passed through the classic Rainbow era, that would be the Australian bassist Bob Daisley. He just played on parts of the Long Live Rock and Roll album and then toured with the band, but Daisley goes on to be really the central figure in Ozzy Osbourne's massive 1980s solo career. So that's very, very important heavy metal lore, though a story for another time. So John, speak the official words and make this real. Rainbow Rising is number six on our list. And one of my favorite albums in the world. Oh, John. Is that your impression of me? Is that what you think I sound like? I don't know. What are you <laughs> Are you just genuinely terrible at impressions? Yes. Okay. That's accurate. 
<laughs> I can do lots of funny voices, though. So. Right. I got that going for me. Great. All right. Next! Ooh, now we get to talk about what I think is maybe still John's favorite band to date from this first season, The Mighty Judas Priest. That is correct. Wow. Oh, all right. So it's been all downhill since episode two, is what you're telling me. Also correct. Wow. All right. Great. I think probably the listeners feel the same way. <laughs> so Judas Priest really are an absolutely incredible band. And aside from the neither heavy metal nor great 1974 debut Rockarola, all of Judas Priest's 1970s albums really are essential. They basically took over precisely where Black Sabbath left off with Sad Wings of Destiny, 1976, Sin After Sin, 1977, Stained Class, 1978, and Hellbent for Leather, which was actually originally known in the UK as Killing Machine, from 1979. I'll also say the 1979 live album, Unleashed in the East, is totally essential as well. In fact, I'm gonna Black Sabbath this bad boy, and I'm gonna put all the 1970s Judas Priest albums, at least from 1976 through 79, into this starter pack. If I did need to choose just one Judas Priest album as an extra special essential, I think it would be the one we talked about on episode two, Sad Wings of Destiny, which is where Judas Priest truly became Judas Priest. Okay, John, do it. Number seven on the list is every 1970s Judas Priest album, except for Rockarola, but especially 1976's Sad Wings of Destiny. So would you agree that at this point this is the least clear list in the history of lists? I'm really hoping that at some point you're going to make me read all of these in a list-like order so that the listener doesn't have to fast forward four <laughs> minutes at a time to find the pieces that they're supposed to be seeking out. I am going to do that, yes. Great. Yes. Anywho, so probably my favorite metal album of the entire decade is the 1978 self-titled debut of Van Halen. I think that you and I can both agree that that is some pretty essential listening, right? Yeah, that's pretty good. You know, I kind of forgot about Van Halen. Ah, yeah, I was wondering if you had forgotten about I that. I did. I did fully. They're also good. Uh, I yeah. enjoyed them. Okay, good. That makes me feel so so it's more of a more of a roller coaster with ups and downs than just a one big downhill. Yeah, it hasn't just been like a drop off a cliff. Okay. That I feel I feel good about that. And while you're at it, listeners, I would strongly advise just continuing straight on to Van Halen 2 from 1979, which is at worst just the tiniest bit less extraordinary than the debut, if only because it's in many Respects very similar and you know, law of diminishing returns, but both albums are absolutely incredible. We talked a whole hell of a lot about Van Halen already, and I don't have anything more to say about that album, but John, anything else you would like to share about the wonderful Van Halen debut? Number eight on the list. <laughs> okay, then. Van Halen's eponymous debut. Ooh, you got to say eponymous. I feel like I am now <laughs> truly a part of this podcast. Okay, so we've just hit two consecutive bands that John genuinely likes. You can kind of feel the optimism and buoyancy in the room, right? Who's ready to take a dark <laughs> turn? <laughs> we remember that cliff you were talking about? <laughs> so it's time to get down and dirty with selection number nine and revisit some hallowed heavy metal grounds with perhaps to. the coolest band of them all, Motorhead. Motorhead are actually another band whose entire 1970s discography really is worth a look, but Overkill, 
1979, and the album we talked about on episode number three definitely has to make this heavy metal starter pack. We discussed the band and the album in great detail on When Punk and Heavy Metal Collided, aka Lemmy is God. We are Motorhead, and we play rock and roll! So if you aren't up to speed with your Motorhead facts and figures, please do go and check that one out. Meanwhile, John, read your thing. Number nine on the list is Motorhead's Overkill. See, now wasn't that totally painless? Painless to say, painful to listen to. It was like 25 seconds. It was like I'm talking about the album. Oh. (laughs) I thought you were talking about my No, you're fine. (laughs) Your opinion sucks, but you're fine. (laughs) Well, we're done now. You feel, you're okay, no more Motorhead. All right. Now we're actually onto our very last selection. And John, this may be your new favorite band of our entire bunch. Uh, are you excited about this one? This is the one you, well, I believe, alluded to being excited about. I mean, I'm excited about this one, though. I want to say this isn't new to me. This is actually one of the few bands I did actually know before we began this whole Which is adventure. crazy. It's like a whole new thing we got. You should, you should lead. Like, what, what? No, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to mess with it. All right, we got. We got a magical yeah, formula. There's, there's here. a structure. Okay, I appreciate that. So, <laughs> the band we're talking about, in case you don't remember from when I mentioned the three bands that were new that we would be talking about, this is another one of those groups that lives along that border region between hard rock and heavy metal, and whose inclusion may make certain people just a little bit grumpy. I here refer to the great rockers from down under with the biggest balls of them all. ACDC. John, could you tell us about your relationship with ACDC? My relationship with ACDC started thanks to Tony Hawk Pro Skater. Ah, Tony Hawk, a man of many talents. Yeah, where TNT was included in the soundtrack. Dynamite. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Heard that song, liked that song, wanted to seek out more of their music, and started to. Nice. Yeah. So you like ACDC? I do like ACDC. Well, you're a man of uh, impeccable taste once in a while. Yeah. Very rarely. Consider how you phrase that. Yeah, yeah. This, we're in definitely in dangerous territory here. Honestly, my personal history with ACDC is actually a little bit checkered. I really didn't care for them all that much throughout most of my heavy metal youth. And it, it really wasn't until some friends dragged me along to an ACDC concert one summer, all the way when I was pretty well into college and back home. Uh, that is when I discovered what an amazing band they truly were. I was blown away by the live show, and since then I've been like a really good They strike fan. me as one of those groups that is probably better live. Oh, they're definitely better live, which is actually going to be pertinent to the selection I'm going to make. But yes, they are a truly extraordinary live band. No no doubt about that. Okay, we're going to talk just a bit about the formative history of the band. ACDC came together in Sydney, Australia in 1973. The band was formed by the brothers Malcolm, the elder, rest in peace, and Angus Young, who were born not in Australia, but rather in Glasgow, Scotland in 1953 and 1955, respectively. Their family relocated to Australia in 1963. Malcolm served as ACDC's rhythm guitarist until his death in 2017, and Angus plays lead guitar for them to this very day. The other truly crucial founding member was the late, great Bon Scott, who was also a Scottish expat, born in Angus, Scotland in 1946. His family relocated to Australia in 1952. 
Scott passed away way too young in February of 1980, officially of acute alcohol poisoning, though there are rumors that a heroin overdose maybe was involved. Either way, it seems that he passed out and choked to death on his own vomit, which is, yeah, not a great way to go. The rest of the classic, or at least the most classic ACDC lineup includes Phil Rudd on drums and Cliff Williams on bass. We've talked a lot today, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds about ACDC, but I do want to point to a bit of potential confusion pertaining to their really early albums that I think is pretty interesting. The original ACDC debut was titled High Voltage, but this album was released only in Australia on February 17th, 1975, and is not the album that most people know as High Voltage. Their second album, which was entitled TNT, was also released only in Australia at the latter end of 1975. Now, the international release that was entitled High Voltage, that came out on April 30th, 1976, and it compiled the best songs from TNT, which, weirdly enough, actually includes the song titled High Voltage, and just two additional songs that had been on the Australian version titled High Voltage. All this is very confusing, right? I am confused. Yeah, good, good. So we're back in comfortable territory. Yep, feels good. Great. And if that wasn't confusing enough, their second international release, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, which most of the world got to enjoy upon its original release in 1976, it actually didn't come out in America until 1981. Okay, that's enough background for now. The final entry on our wacky, wonderful 1970s metal starter pack is going to be another live album, ACDC's Fabulous, If You Want Blood, You've Got It, from 1978. I honestly think a good faith argument could be made that this is the very best live album of the entire decade, though I imagine Judas Priest, Kiss, and perhaps Peter Frampton fans would all have something to say about that. If you want to have a studio album, we got those too, and after a whole bunch of consideration, John, remember me wrestling with this? uh... Eric has genuinely been going back and forth about this for the better part of a month. And I have the text messages to prove this. <laughs> I care. He cares. So much. He cares so about much. you, dear listener. He wants you to get the most out of this podcast, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I get to hear about it. You do. <laughs> you sure do. After a lot of reflection and soul-searching, I did in fact choose as the studio replacement 1976's Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. I think it's pound for pound the best of their 70s studio albums. They're all really good, but not only does it have the title track, and not only does it have Problem Child, two of their finest songs, it also has possibly my favorite song of all time on it, the extraordinary and strangely moving Ride On, which, I might add, was actually the final song played at my wedding reception. I love the little details into your personal life we get in each one of these episodes. I know. By the time this podcast has reached its 47th season, we're going to know your entire life story. You'll have my social security number, (laughs) pictures of my children. (laughs) All right, so John, tell them what they've won. Last but not least on our list is ACDC's live album, If You Want Blood, You Got It, with an optional studio album replacement of Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. Done Dirt Cheap! I'm not going to try and do his voice. Okay. So, John, we did it! We have given the world a beautiful, priceless gift. How do you feel about that? 
I feel like this is a burdensome gift. Are we going to make it a little bit uh, less right, painful for them now? We're going to streamline this. I'm going to now have you read a short-form version of this rather goofy and lumpy list that we've created of 70 me- 70s heavy metal. Of 70 different albums. Who's ready? Number one! The top 1,000 albums of the 1970s. All right. So, John. Let's do a summation of our heavy metal 1970s listeners starter pack. Summation, please! Number one, the first six Black Sabbath albums. Black Sabbath, Paranoid, Master of Reality, Volume 4, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, and Sabotage. If you can only listen to one, pick Paranoid. Number two, Deep Purple's Machine Head. Number three, Alice Cooper's Billion Dollar Babies. Number four, Kiss Alive, which is a live album, or Love Gun, which is not. Number five, The Scorpions' Love Drive. Number six, Aerosmith's Toys in the Attic. (laughs) Inside joke! (laughs) I keep trying to get John to admit it's his favorite album, but it's not working. Go on, please. Number seven, Rainbow Rising. Number eight, Judas Priest, a bunch of albums. Sad Wings of Destiny, Sin After Sin, Stained Class, Hell Bent for Leather, a.k.a. Killing Machine, and the live album Unleashed in the East. If you can only listen to just one, pick Sad Wings of Destiny. Number nine, Van Halen's eponymous debut. Number ten, Motorhead Overkill. Number eleven, ACDC's If You Want Blood, You've Got It. Or, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. There you have it! Huzzah! So, we'd love to hear from you. Please do shoot us an email at heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com or head over to our Anchor page, anchor.fm slash heavymetal101podcast and leave us a nice voice message if you have the time or inclination. Also, please don't forget, rate and review us on iTunes or anywhere else you might listen that allows for such things. Ooh, and we've got social media. John, tell them about our social media. You can find us on Facebook at Heavy Metal 101 Podcast or now on Instagram Ooh. at Heavy Metal 101 Podcast. Ooh, we're on Twitter? We're now on Twitter, too. Wow, I'm not on Twitter, so I had no idea. I know. On Twitter, we're at Heavy underscore 101. So I'm thinking, actually, that perhaps next we could get a Heavy Metal 101 TikTok and you could design, like, a thematically integrated dance that sort of accompanies each episode that we could release simultaneously? What do you, what do you think? Eric, you've known me for a few years now. <laughs> and I want to ask you what part of your knowledge about my being makes you think that me designing a thematically appropriate heavy metal dance for TikTok <laughs> makes sense. We're going to put a pin in that one for now, but we'll come back to it. We'll come back to it a little later. We'll, I'll, work, I'll work on it. I'll work on it. Okay, so that's that. John, is there anything else you'd like to say to the lovely people before we head back to our secret heavy metal crypt and recharge our evil batteries? Keep your ears open for the final episode of this first season, and if you like what we're doing, tell a friend, and then call your therapist. (laughs) Words of wisdom from a wise, wise man. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody! Bye, everybody!